Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me today on this episode of Activist Lawyer, uh, recorded in our podcast studio in Newry. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Donk O'Connell. Hello, Professor. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Sarah. Uh, so just before we get into your work and have a chat, I am just going to introduce you to our listeners. So Professor Donnick O'Connell is an established professor of law in the School of Law, University of Galway, where he currently teaches advocacy, activism and public interest law, European human rights law, policing and administrative law. He has served terms as Dean of the Law Faculty and Head of the School of Law. Professor O'Connell has served on a number of governmental bodies, most recently the Independent Review Group to examine the Offences Against the State Acts, which reported in 2023, and in which he co-authored a minority report. He has also served two terms as a Commissioner of the Law Reform Commission from 2012 to 2020, and he was a member of the Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland from 2017 to 2018. He served as a member of the Legal Aid Board as well. Professor O'Connell has also served on the boards of a number of non-governmental organisations, including Interrights, FLAC and Amnesty International Ireland. From 1999 to 2002, while on leave of absence from his academic post in Galway, he was the first full-time director of the Irish Council for Civil Civil Liberties. He's also been a board member of the internationally acclaimed Druid Theatre Company based in Galway which I'm familiar with. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much again for joining us. Um, I will say to our uh, listeners that um, this is our second guest on from what's now known as the University of Galway. In my day, it was NUIG, uh, (laughs) going back many, many years. And... um, I fond memories of my constitutional law lectures, which were, of course, delivered by yourself. (laughs) Yeah, I have have vague memories of your constitutional law lectures. It's so so long ago at this stage. And it was was UCG in my day, Um, and then NUID, and now now University of Galway. So it's... uh, yeah, lots of names. It's hard to keep up, but you're still you're still there anyway. And of course, um, a fantastic um, outline there of the, the work that you've done both within the college and outside of it. And we know things change um, ever so quickly in Ireland. But just before we get into, I suppose, um, the themes that we'd like to cover today, can you just, I suppose, take listeners back to how you got into law? What um, made you, I suppose, decide to, to do the academic side of law? Yeah, I mean, I... I, no, nobody in my family was a lawyer. Like on my mother's and father's side, everyone was either a pharmacist, a doctor, or a teacher. I mean, that was they were the the, the chosen careers. So I suppose I ended up becoming a teacher. Really, um, you know, choosing law was maybe I mean, you know, a sad act of rebellion. I, I do remember my parents were really keen that I would do pharmacy, and if I didn't do pharmacy, that I would do veterinary because <laughs> I liked animals. And um, but I wasn't I wasn't really uh, I wasn't drawn towards that at all. Um, and so I I liked English and Irish and French and debating and things like that. So in history, I love I still love history. So I suppose it was kind of a strange one, but I was drawn towards that. I you know I had a very shallow reason as well for being interested in law. I love Rumpole on TV yeah. and Matlock, you know, for the American version of it. So I had, you know, all the usual shallow reasons that students choose law. And then when I did do it, I actually found it, I found it quite interesting. Um, and in Galway, you did law through art. That's so right. you did it as part of an art program with something else. I did sociology and politics, which, you know, I was actually better at uh, than law. And I was probably more interested in both. 
you know, we were the kids of the 1980s drawn towards professional careers. And I, I did the bar with the view to, to practicing at the bar. And becoming an academic was a complete accident. I, uh, I was looking for a reference from the then uh, head of, of, of law, Professor Lee O'Malley, and um, because I was getting part-time work as a teacher in Dublin when I was going to devil with, with the barrister, Mel Crystal actually was his name, mm-hmm. and um, I, I had all that arranged, and then somebody left the law school in Galway at short notice, and they needed somebody for a year. So I ended up um, doing that because Liam knew I was, I was looking for, for part-time work and postponing the deadline. And I, I liked this. And then after that year, there were a number of permanent jobs advertised in the law faculty, as it was then called in Galway. <laughs> and I applied, got one of them, and uh, you know thought I would do that for a while. I didn't really... Um, you know, I didn't really have a plan. I mean, I was, I was only 25 at the time. And after a period of time, then I was entitled to sabbatical. So I took sabbatical leave, during which time I applied for the job of director of ICCL. This was the first time that they had uh, a full-time paid director. And I was at that stage, I was 30, 31, which was actually frighteningly young to be the director of, of a non-governmental organization. I didn't think that at the time, <laughs> you know, confidence thing when you're 31. And um, so I, I got that job, which I did for three years. I got leave of absence from the university. I didn't actually leave my post, um, even though, you know, to be honest, I didn't intend to go back. And, and then, you know, I changed my mind and went back. And, you know, over a period of time, I took on other roles at the university and was promoted and things like that. So it wasn't, never a plan and um, I never set out to be an academic um, and I think ultimately you know what drew me towards it was I liked I liked teaching I see a huge value in that and the context that you have with people who will go on to do different things in their careers some of which are, are of huge value but also there's great freedom in being an academic there's freedom to do things that you wouldn't have if you were practicing it's very, very difficult, I think, for practitioners to engage to the degree that academics can, not all academics choose to, in, in activism of various kinds and in kind of pursuing an ideal of justice that, that means something to you, whether you're right or wrong. And I, I found that, that Academia in Galway was particularly hospitable for that, for those kinds of pursuits. And, and that was, you know that that has been a very, a very positive experience, all told. Uh, but but definitely it wasn't it wasn't a plan, and I think there's there's something in that. And I often say this to students myself: you have to plan, but you have to plan flexibly. You yeah. cannot, you know, you simply cannot write the course of your life uh, and follow that literally. I mean, some people say they do that, or some people, you know, laugh when you say you shouldn't. But I really think that. Um, you know, planning is something not to be done to excess uh, and to be done in a way that leaves open uh, options, you know, throughout your life, bearing in mind that you will change. You know, you're going to change in terms of your interests and your, your, uh, your, your plans and your desires. So I think, I think that's, um, that's a long-winded way of saying how I accidentally yeah. became a academic. 
Excellent. Yeah, I suppose law in particular, I mean, um, opens so many opportunities. So it's um, really important to have that that level of flexibility. And just in terms of your teaching and your work, um, recently I came across the Advocacy, Activism and Public Interest Law module that's being taught. I think it was shared by students and, and on LinkedIn as well. Um, and it really drew my attention to it, it seems I, I don't I'm not sure how long the course has been ar- ar- around, but I was thinking, wow, what an opportunity. So can you tell me more maybe about that course and, you know, what has student feedback been like? Yeah, in, in 2009, 2010, I had a sabbatical year and I spent it at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE in London. And during that year, I did a course. Um, an evening course, it was a certificate course organised by the late Jonathan Cooper, uh, who sadly died in, in the, uh, recent times, and he was a wonderful uh, person. And he organised a course on uh, international human rights law practice. And I kind of thought this was this would be interesting to do as somebody who had taught European human rights and was interested broadly in human rights. It was full of people from NGOs, government policies and things like that. And that got me thinking about the need, you know, we had a number of, of LLM options in Galway and I used to teach a course uh, called Processes of Law Reform, uh, which was an interesting, you know, piece related to the idea of public interest law, mm-hmm. but only part of that picture. And, you know, so I continue that course, but I, I, I thought through work I had done with the Public Interest Law Alliance and very heavily influenced by the writing of people like Jerry White, Sandra Fredman and others elsewhere, that there was something to be done on public interest law more generally and not just law reform, which is an aspect of public interest law, and on the area of advocacy and activism, which of course I had experiential insights on through my work in the ICPL and for a number of other NGOs. So I, I crafted a course, a master's course, uh, one semester long, to be offered to students uh, on the various programs in Galway on advocacy, activism, and public interest law, which I think would appeal to students who you know, might be considering a professional path, might be considering an academic path, but were interested broadly in the idea of, um, you know, law and the public interest as opposed to uh, other other manifestations of law or whatever and might be interested in the political dimension yeah. of lawyering you know unapologetically interested in the political dimension of lawyering and there was you know there was a good degree of interest in it i mean it's been taught every year bar one there was one year where it wasn't taught but we had a was a, a drop in, in LLM, llm numbers in that particular right. year and now in more recent times, students from the Human Rights LLM program have gravitated towards it, which is wonderful because it means that the profile of the class is now really uh, international. And sure. this year, the largest class, I had out 20, which was a very large number. We had students from Ethiopia, Liberia, the US, Canada, the Netherlands, uh, Ireland, of course, and India and China and other countries that I'm probably forgetting. Uh, you know, so it, it really, and some of them came with experience of practice in public interest law, of practice on the state side in dealing with public interest law. Yeah. So it was really, really interesting. And the course, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to say it's a clinical legal education course because it doesn't have, you know, it wouldn't have enough 
uh, practitioner um, content in it, although I bring people in from outside yeah. to do that. But the idea is to enable master's students to see themselves as public interest lawyers or as lawyers who operate within that framework of reference, whether through human rights or other areas, and to be able to understand what advocacy is and what activists do and the regulatory framework within which uh, activism is conducted so that they have you know, tools to be public interest lawyers uh, after completion of the master's course. And my sense is that students who choose it are, you know, have a very strong motivation towards that type of, of career. And I find, I find teaching it very enriching. I mean, it's, mm. it's different than teaching other courses. And teaching master's level is always different than teaching other courses, but it's a very enriching process. And it's very interesting to see what some of them go on to do afterwards. And this year, we brought back a student who did the module only two or three years ago. He did it during COVID. And he gave a wonderful guest seminar to the students on climate litigation, wow. which he's yeah. now doing on, uh, in UCD. It was a really brilliant seminar. And um, and I think the students found that immensely beneficial, not just in terms of its substantive content, but they could also see themselves doing something yeah. like what he did immediately after uh, their master's program and and I think that's a, you know, that's a really great thing. It is. It's such a valuable opportunity. I mean, it, things have really moved on since I've been um, at college. But I find like one of the questions we'd even get asked here, you know, and pe- students would send it in, how do I become an activist lawyer? And for me, that just was not a term. It did not exist. So yeah. it's really fantastic that Galway and I suppose other um, uh, third level institutes as well offer similar courses and have that hands on experience, too. Um, you mentioned there as well about you know um working in you have that more of a freedom i guess um you know than practitioners would um as a result of working um within the academic side of uh, law and you yourself you've written extensively on policing matters in ireland being one topic and I, I guess that's a very topical issue at the moment of course you lecture on the subject and you were a commission on a member of the commission on the future of policing in ireland i suppose the question is um is Ireland facing a crisis when it comes to policing and law and order? And I'm perhaps I'm saying this in a general sense, but more so in the back of maybe what's happened two to three weeks ago. We had Solicitor Gary Daly on um, previously talking about the riots in Dublin. So listeners might be familiar with that. But I suppose it has really shone a light on policing in general. And I'm just interested in hearing, you know, your take on it in view of the riots. How much force can or should the Gardaí be using following the Dublin riots? I mean, the, the language of crisis is always used in respect of policing services everywhere. You know, they're always uh, in, the, in the eye of some controversy and they're always dealing with crisis-type situations. I mean, you could argue that crisis management is a, an aspect of, of policing. So the kind of controversy that ensued after the riots in Dublin uh, two weeks ago is in a sense, I would say, the normal level of controversy that policing services cope with. However, in 2017, when the Commission on the Future of Policing, of which I was a member, was established, the kind of crisis which the Irish Policing Service found itself in was an existential crisis. It related to 
you know, endemic and chronic scandals uh, in areas of policing is, uh, is related to, you know, deep dysfunction at the leadership and governance level uh, and indeed at the political level in policing in Ireland. Uh, and for that reason, the commission was established under the chairmanship of Cathy O'Toole, who had been on the Patent Commission in Northern Ireland, in order to address, in a holistic way, uh, the problems of policing in the South and setting out a blueprint for the future of policing. Um, so, you know, that to me was the real crisis. The kind of things that are happening now, the industrial relations problems with regard to representative bodies, arguments about rosters, terms and conditions, evidence of low morale, which I think is, is, is real, but you will always get that in a context of, of significant change. And questions about uh, the ability to withstand threats from the far right that have been underestimated, uh, frankly, because of a disproportionate focus on historical security threats. Uh, those are, you know, real serious issues, but I think they're, in a sense, the normal issues of crisis and controversy with which policing services contend and our ability to navigate those, you know, to have the argument and the public discussion about what happened, to achieve some resolution by, you know, interacting with bodies like the policing authority and whatever. I think those are all actually good signs, yeah. um, not necessarily negative signs. It remains to be seen, by the way, whether all of those mechanisms work in the context of that most recent problem with the riot. But I don't think I don't think that it's um, as big a deal as the problems were in 2017 when the Commission on the Future of Policing were established. And I think we lose sight of that very easily. I think the press in particular in the South is very, you know, it's very driven by current controversies and 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 what you might, you know, uh, considered to be in a way more kind of melodramatic happening. You know, they forget actually how bad things were in 2017 and how um, how much has been done, albeit at a slower pace because of COVID, uh, to address that and how, how much is still to be achieved in terms of embedding community policing, like real policing with communities, not just the phrase yeah. community policing. Um, you know, going forward. And I think that's, that should really be the focus uh, of, of what happened uh, in, in, in the past couple of weeks yeah. in Dublin. Awful. And then I suppose on a broader level, and it's something that we've covered on at least two occasions, um, and I guess it feeds into it, the criminal justice um, structure in Ireland in general. And I suppose what I'm talking about um, is reform around um, the matter broadly when it comes to, um, you know, per legal aid funding, when it, when it comes to crime. Do you see that, I suppose, reform and whoever's responsible for it, whether it's the Minister for Justice, is in fact needed on an overall scale to improve um, the situation around criminal justice in general, whether that be policing? And yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Conor Brady, the former editor at the Irish Times and former member of GSOC and you know, a recognized historian of, of policing um, in Ireland has written, he's written very well about um, a more kind of holistic approach to the criminal justice system in the South 
for the currency, uh, which is a, an online um, journal. And he wrote mm-hmm. a, a very, a very worthwhile piece recently on that. You know, joining up the dots of crises in various parts of the system, and and making some extremely valuable uh, points and points that are borne out by a lifetime of experience. Uh, in this area and a, and a deep interest um, uh, in the subject matter, and I, I, I would recommend that piece to anyone. I mean, I think it's it's, it's a really really good piece. Uh, I think in order to kind of tackle those issues at a holistic level, the Department of Justice, which is the lead department, although there is a multi-agency dimension to a lot of this, and that has to be acknowledged. Yeah. And in fact, the Commission on the Future of Policing was, was really clear on the multi-agency nature of problems, and that informed our recommendation on local community uh, policing partnerships, which is contained in the legislation to implement our recommendations. But the Department of Justice is unavoidably the lead department in this respect. And one of the concerns that I have in that regard is that even with the best will in the world, that department defaults to quite conservative thinking when it comes to reform issues. I know this from my time on the Law Reform Commission, but I also know it in other in other contexts. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem, that you simply cannot luxuriate in the certainty of the past. You must have processes that are genuinely open, not token consultative processes to say that you consulted, but that actually listen to what Others from outside uh, the department have to say, and others with genuine expertise based on comparative analysis, which we can't have enough of, have to say. And I think that is still a work in progress Mm. in the Department of Justice. There are some excellent people in that department, you know, doing their level best to, you know, make policy change that is progressive and that that is workable and practical. But I think overall, that department is still in its setting uh, conservative Mm -hmm. and not sufficiently open to the kind of thinking that's required to modernize policing and all sorts of other areas as well, including the area of national security. And I think that requires a huge amount of more work and real political leadership. you know, there is a degree to which that can be blamed on the political leadership or the lack of political leadership. But there's also, I think, um, a comfortable coexistence between the embedded thinking in that department and what passes through that department as political leadership from time to time. And I think one of the ways of dealing with that, and I've spoken about this previously, is to engage with stakeholders uh, whether academic or policy experts or others, you know, on the basis that you don't have to agree on everything, but on the basis that you're actually listening sure. and not on the basis that you're going through the motions of consultation, but your mind is already made up. Mm-hmm. So it remains to be seen, I guess, um, and lots of work to do around those areas in general. And I know that you served as a commissioner of the on the Law Reform Commission, as mentioned, but also on the Independent Review Group to examine the offences against the state acts. And we mentioned already that you co-authored the minor- Minority Report um, on the back of that review. 
the acts itself, and I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole when I was looking over this, they were really a bit of a tumultuous history in Ireland in terms of, you know, they seem to have the acts um, and the various amendments to the acts responsive are responsive to I suppose outbreaks of, of violence as well, even in the north, um, have impacted some of the changes. So first, before we get into your work, could you maybe give us a little outline of the acts and um, that were being reviewed, and maybe as well why so many human rights organisations and civil liberties groups in Ireland had lobbied for reform, and I think welcome the changes overall. Well, myself and Dr. Alan Green from uh, Birmingham Law School were the two authors of minority report um, and our view would be that the Offences Against the State Act is an example of permanent emergency legislation. The idea of permanent emergency legislation uh, which is of course permitted uh, on a particular reading by the Irish Constitution but our view is that that is a bad idea and that in legislating for issues like undoubtedly serious issues like terrorism and organized crime that it shouldn't be done using that model of permanent emergency legislation. Um, I suppose the informing principle of our view is that the Constitution enshrines trial by jury as the gold standard um, for a criminal, serious criminal matters and that the continued existence and increased use of the special criminal court goes against that constitutional ideal, uh, even though that has been approved uh, on many occasions by the Irish Supreme Court, our view was that that was done on the basis of the application of the deference principle to the executive and to the parliament. In constitutional law, we understand that completely, but that in reviewing something like this, we shouldn't apply, in a sense, a double deference and, and take the view that because the Supreme Court says it's okay, it's okay. Uh, our view was that it doesn't have to be like that mm. and that it is possible within the framework of the Irish Constitution to take the right to trial by jury more seriously and to protect it in a more meaningful manner and and not to, in a sense, you know, continue with with what has been there um, you know, very actively since the early seventies, but actually since since the the nineteen forties. And um, there are whole sorts of other issues, related issues to do with opinion evidence, to do with subscription and other things that we, we commented on as well. So it was, a, it was a fairly fundamental difference of opinion uh, with our colleagues in the majority. And however, we did agree unanimously that the Offences Against the State Act should be repealed. Okay. And we didn't agree on what should replace them. And the Hederman Review, which happened uh, in I think 2000, 2001, it also recommended repeal of the Offences Against the State Act. So, you know, there is a real job of work to be done here, um, both this second review and, you know, the Department of Justice response was actually to go back to some of the people that we engaged with, the DCP, on Garda Siobhana, the Irish Human Rights as well, the Commission and others, you know, which completely you know, makes no sense. We engaged, you know, in great detail with these bodies and presented our differing views. Um, and, you know, to, to then decide, well, we'll go back and we'll ask them ourselves, uh, is not an adequate response yeah. to a review such as this. 
and that um, frankly troubles me, mm-hmm. having spent two years on it yeah. and having worked very diligently uh, in preparing with my colleague Alan um, uh, a minority report. Mm-hmm. And when do we expect to see any progress around this? Um, is it just kind of lying low for a while? That question should be directed to the Department of Justice. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm certainly not holding my breath. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if it's of interest maybe to your listeners, I am organising with Alan Green a conference on the 16th of February uh, in the University of Galway uh, on the theme of replacing the Offences Against the State Act and the, the real challenges of trial by jury for uh, terrorism and organised crime. And we will have speakers at that from the US, Australia, the United Kingdom, uh, and, and Ireland itself. Um, and we're bringing together a, a, a collection of, of experts and some practitioners um, to you know, really explore <clears throat> in more detail than the review group did, in fact, uh, the options that the state has in replacing the Offences Against the State Act mm-hmm. and or the Offences Against the State Act. And I would strongly encourage people who are interested in that, you know, to attend the conference or to engage with the conference in some way. It's a genuine effort to, you know, inform the debate and add more expert sure. insight to the deliberations. I mean, the political system may be somewhat close to that and somewhat lacking in interest, but that doesn't mean that you can't continue to offer some some ideas. And we're doing that, as I say, on the 15th of February in Galway. There will be Eventbrite uh, registration notices distributed in the coming week. Very good. And so far, we have an excellent lineup of speakers. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it will do something mm-hmm. to enrich whatever deliberation yeah. is taking place, or whatever deliberation will take place in the coming time. I mean, you know, in Ireland, it's generally, you know, there's a generally kind of a tumultuous uh, 24 hours of interest in this, and you have to renew certain provisions of the 1998 Offensive Against the Amendment Act and other pieces of legislation. And it has really centered around Sinn Fein's pivot away from its uh, lack of support for the Special Criminal Court towards its new position, which is not entirely clear. Mm. And the press faithfully record that as, you know, a day-long drama-rama that's really about nothing. And what we would invite people to do is to actually consider the issues, the important issues that are involved here, and engage in a more serious and less childish way, frankly, with this debate. Uh, And and also that entails, you know, the likes of Sinn Féin, who who are important in this, you know, engaging seriously as well and coming up with a coherent position, not merely a position. And that, you know, requires of all of us, I think, a degree of serious engagement, which has been desperately lacking Mm -hmm. uh, to date. So for better or for worse, and perhaps in pursuit of utility, we will keep going and talking on this issue in a passionate way designed to actually achieve some good Mm -hmm. uh, in the area of public discourse on the right to trial by jury and broadly due process. Due process. Um, and a lot of your work, anyway, and your, your publications necessarily deal with the interaction between 
I suppose, government and the law, politics and the law, and perhaps more so even in a constitutional setting. Um, I read one of your pieces that you wrote just about um, the, attor- the role of the Attorney General and um, you know what lies in the pub- public interest. But just in a general point, um, how adaptable, I suppose, is the Irish Constitution? I mean, Ireland has been, isn't have there been 32 um, amendments, I think, since 1937, maybe more. Um, I'm just wondering on the flexibility of it and are the Irish public, the Irish people amenable to sea change? You know, um, it's something that obviously is very unique to Ireland when we look at what the UK have. So I'm just interested in your, your broad view on that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's, it's a really big question. I mean, the big, for me, the biggest problem with the Irish Constitution as it's interpreted by the Irish judiciary is its resistance and antipathy to socioeconomic rights. Mm-hmm. But I've long held the view that socioeconomic rights would be very popular with the public. Yeah. And I don't buy into the argument made by some that if it means higher taxes, it won't be. I actually don't buy that argument at all. And I think that the public are actually quite distributed in their mindset and get the need for some constitutional underpinning. You know, I'm not necessarily saying rigid ones, but some constitutional underpinning for distributive justice and socioeconomic rights in that broad sense. But we've closed off that possibility, you know, certainly in the early, in the noughties, with a very, you know, strong position taken by the Supreme Court in reaction to uh, the use of mandatory orders by some high court judges in areas that entrenched upon socioeconomic rights and socioeconomic justice. I, I think that's usually regrettable, and I think it's something that in any reconstitutionalizing of Ireland will almost certainly be revisited. I mean, it has to be if our international obligations are to mean anything. And and there are good examples of, of where we could go with that, say, the South African system and other places. So that to me is a is a big is a big concern. But what I find what I find kind of interesting and, and it's bubbling up right now in relation to an amendment that's going to be put to the people in the referendum on the eighth of March in twenty twenty four is that the government seems very much swayed by the advice of the Office of the Attorney General and not by the citizens' assembly, mm-hmm. which I think does actually give a good representation of where the public are at in its decision not to make a strong mention in the Constitution to the value of care in the family uh, in the context of deleting the reference to women in the home, which is, of course, a welcome thing, and redefining certain family rights uh, under the Constitution, however inelegantly. And I think that's going to be a very interesting moment uh, in our constitutional change history because, you know, there will be a temptation on the part, particularly of civil society groups, Mm -hmm to support the package of amendments being put forward. But they need to be very, very careful about that because in putting the formula of striving to achieve or striving to support uh, care in the home, that's really very little more than, as Conor O'Mahony from UCC has pointed out, you're replacing essentially sexist language with gender-neutral language, but it's still a thought. And it's yeah. not a recognition in any meaningful way uh, of, of, of rights, of course, because they're socioeconomic. That is classic thinking of the Department, or sorry, of the Office of the Attorney General. It's classic thinking of the government system and indeed of the Irish judiciary. Not all of them, but many of them. 
and I think that's regrettable. I I think there's um I think it's a pathetic amendment, quite frankly, and I hope it's not passed. I certainly hope it's not supported by important civil society groups, particularly the National Women's Council. Um, and it will be very interesting to see how that, uh, you know, is debated and ultimately received. It may end up like the children's rights referendum being passed in a kind of an apathetic way, yeah. but it may not. It may become a moment where people will actually say, no, like, this is not what we want by way of constitutional change, not what we want by way of, of values in the constitution. We're not convinced by the argument of a sudden lurch towards, towards judicial activism where the Supreme Court will all become mad redistributors of, of public goods. I mean, I don't think anyone really takes that very seriously. And I think it's a, it would be a good moment for those of us who would prefer a different emphasis in constitutional law to, in fact, use the opportunity of a referendum to reject what is, you know, quite frankly, a patronizing um, and pointless um, change. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. March is that the date for that reference? March the 8th, yeah. It's, it's International Women's Day, which again is, that's you know, correct, yeah. your kind of thinking, the shallow thinking actually that goes on in relation to these things. It's actually a very overdue amendment, particularly mm-hmm. on the question of women in the home. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we're only dealing with that now. Mm-hmm. It had to be discussed as far away as 1996. I probably taught you about that yeah. when you were in Galway because it was in the Constitution as you do handle the court of code at the time of the enactment of the Constitution. So, you know, the women have been made to wait until now, but what have they been given? Yeah. Like, it's not just women, of course, it's others as well. Those carers, you know, a really, you know, meaningless, uh, virtue signaling um, hat on the head. Uh, in the constitution, but not one that I think is worth um, is worth supporting. Yeah. Well, we we await the outcome of that. It'll be an interesting time leading up to March. Just in relation to your work, uh, finally on the, the European Human Rights Law um, that you lecture on and you've published uh, quite widely on as well. You, I'm well, I'm guessing you you have a, a keep an, an eye on what's happening in in the UK and of course how that impacts the north and the island here as a whole um, with the, I suppose we can call it an attempt to kind of diminish human rights, replace it with a very Tory version of human rights with their own act. Um, I know some of um, the Conservatives' plans have already been thrown out, but no doubt it gave a lot of kind of food for thought in terms of the Convention, the European Convention on Human Rights, our reliance on it, and more particularly in terms of Northern Ireland, its impact on the Good Friday Agreement and whether um, getting rid of it would have any, you know, would really threaten the Good Friday Agreement and also the kind of pressing need here and the voice for a Bill of Rights in the North. What is your take on all of that? Yeah, I mean, they look, at least the Good Friday Agreement pitches in the ECHR into the constitutional fabric in a way that makes it at least more difficult to get rid of despite the very best efforts of some very powerful people and others to achieve that end. However, you know, a lot of the human rights provisions of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement have been really neglected, like the All-Ireland Charter. Does anyone remember that? Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. You know, practically no no progress on that. Things like the Human Rights Institutions, 
um, well, you know, that that's a, I suppose a mixed bag. Yeah. And so the one I suppose enduring thing, which it, in a sense predates the Good Friday Agreement, but for the North have been the you know the, the UKHR and the, the UK Human Rights Act. Um, different in the South, the UKHR Act actually is a weaker version of what you have. And it's come up the the models that were put forward last year, you know, to replace the the UK Human Rights Act. Some of them were actually embarrassingly like the ECHR Act in the South, admittedly without the underpinning of the Irish Constitution. So I'm, you know, I'm making that point, but I'm also, you know, in as mature a way as possible, arguing that of course we have the written Constitution and you know, judges mm-hmm. court uh, rights and unenumerated rights and other things. So I'm not. You know, I don't want to make it as a cheap shot, but having said that, you know, the weaker the weaker form of incorporation that we went for for all sorts of, you know, self serving reasons, um did did raise its head in some of the models that were proposed last year. And I think that was, was somewhat embarrassing. You know, how do you deal with this? I mean, fundamentally the problem of is of course Brexit. I mean, Brexit is a huge problem for people who identify as Irish and European in Northern Ireland, and it's, it's an extremely painful thing, particularly when you consider that the majority of people in the North voted against it. Mm-hmm. It's also madness. I mean, it's complete madness from any kind of a, an economic point of view, and it's very self-defeating, and the ultimate own goal um, to see what has, has ensued since. And, you know, the transcendent fix, if there is to be one, is likely to arise, I suspect, in the context of reunification. I mean, that's now a live topic of discussion and debate. Um, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's certainly being discussed today and tomorrow. And, you know, it's, it's no longer a theoretical or a, or a fanciful discourse. And, and therefore, I think in that context, we have the opportunity a huge credit should go to people like Professor Colin Harvey in, in yes. Queens who has yes. really led out on this and done so with great courage and conviction that we really have to think seriously about human rights and equality in that context and not, by the way, in the kind of add-on and tokenistic way that was done in the Belfast Agreement. You know, obviously, the Friday Belfast Agreement is an immensely valuable thing and a huge credit to everybody involved. But the human rights inequality bits were not, you know, really serious human rights inequality bits in the sense in which they should be in any constitutional order and any constitutional system. And I think in that regard, you know, looking forward to a context in which there may be reunification of the island of Ireland and that the states on the island of Ireland are reconstituted. Instruments like the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights is going to become hugely, or will become hugely important. The ECHR correctly will be seen as valuable but quaint. Like it's not the be-all and end-all of human rights. Obviously it's worth fighting for in the context in which you find yourself now in Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. But going forward, it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all. It is hugely important, but there's you know, an awful lot more be gained, even if you view it as some kind of neutral or external benchmark, in framing a constitutional order based on rights and equality, there's an awful lot more to be gained by looking at the EU Charter, and that's, that's where it's at. And I, you know, just in that connection, in Galway, I used to teach a one-semester course on European human rights 
it's now a year-long course, but it's not just a course on the EPHR. It's a thematic course. Sure, yeah. It's a based on the ECHR and the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, because that's what I think will be the norm for teaching European human rights uh, in the coming years. And it's difficult to manage all the material, even in, in one year-long course, but it's much more much more valuable yeah. in terms of you know, situating current discourse on rights and future prospects. Mm-hmm. I remember doing the module many moons ago. Um, yeah. Just, I suppose, I suppose I'm very privileged here in this, that I can hold this space for both legal practitioners and academics and campaigners and legal activists um, and can see, you know, both sets of people can advocate for a particular matter through their work, albeit in very different ways. Um, you know, whether it's through writing, publications, lobbying, advocacy, membership of boards and panels, again, very important. So I'm just interested in your perspective and your opinion on activism and the law I mean the name of the podcast is activist lawyer and how you know the relationship between activism and the law um you know I, I know you teach teach on it but I suppose on a personal level how can we make change um through the law and therefore in society through also activism yeah I mean they if you, if you go back to the basics of the public interest law approach as discussed by people like Professor Jerry White at Trinity and others and as practiced in the by organizations like SWAC mm-hmm. and the Public Interest Law Alliance in Dublin and many others, uh, you know, throughout these jurisdictions, um, nobody would be so bold as to say you can achieve, you know, change only through an aspect of public interest law, like public interest litigation or whatever. And if you want to see, say, a model, a really good model of best practice and current best practice in that area, it's the Global Legal Action Network, yeah. or GLAN Law, Glan, yeah. uh, which is, is run by a number of people there. They actually have a base in Galway, Gerald O'Quinn and others, um, and Jerry Lipton, others who have, I think, a really excellent approach to you know achieving change or advancing change through different forms of activism, different forms of of, of coalition building, bringing different levels of expertise to things, whether it's kind of, you know, legal litigation type work or journalistic type work or web-based work, uh, work that's very kind of impactful in terms of the public imagination, like the recent case taken by the Portuguese children in the European Court of Human Rights, regardless of the outcome of that case. I think the actual visual impact of those children appearing in front of the court with their claim is is inestimable. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know really really valuable. So I think what what works is to not see law or litigation as the be all and end all. To not see your particular expertise as the be all and end all. It's about you know effective coalition building, effective alliances with others, bearing in mind the value of what others bring uh, to you know to to coordinated efforts, and also seeing I mean, without losing sight of any radical ideas that you may have, but sometimes, sometimes change is incremental and sometimes incrementalism as a tactic uh, works without abandoning any um, aspiration towards a, a more radical or more profound profound change. And I think that's, that's you know, hugely important. I think... Like I always used to say this in the past when I was working full-time in activism, that lawyers are useful. That's the 
best we can do in any setting is to be useful. But you have to always remember they're useful to the other side as well. And therefore, our utility, um, you know, has to be measured in that way. And there isn't kind of, you know, and it, it strikes me as a real concern that I see this all the time with students, you know, that they, the big firms, particularly now because of full employment and everything, big firms really want, you know, the best students and they want the best, most talented students who have the best personalities and the best everything and all of that. And, you know, I'm very much of the view that, well, we should ask the best students what they want to do. We should ask all students what they want to do. And sometimes, um, you know, you see kids, I see this all the time here in Galway, who would be really good barristers. You know, they'd love to be barristers. But, you know, the practicality of making it at the Irish bar and the challenges facing practice at the Irish bar now are so immense that, you know, if you really want to encourage that student to do the bar, you have to do do so in a way that informs them of the challenges, but not so, so much as to turn them off doing what is a proper vocation. Sometimes you end up saying, well, go someplace like London, where you can be a pupil and where you can be paid and not have to wait for years and years uh, to make some money at the Irish Bar, even though you're working very hard during that time. And those kinds of issues that really are, you know, they're wicked issues, really, that need to be sorted Mm -hmm. by the legal profession here in the South, aren't really being addressed adequately. There's a huge push in Ireland now for this thing called Ireland for Law. You know, which is to sell Ireland as a jurisdiction for dispute resolution. Okay. You know, the only jurisdiction in the EU, all of this kind of of sales page. You know, you have, you know, it's it's very commercially driven. It's very very much something that the big firms want. You know, want a lot of the judiciary are involved in it as well. And so, and at the same time, to be fair, they're arguing for improved access to justice and things like that. But those messages might be mutually exclusive. They're not really compatible messages. And I wonder really what is the priority. And that troubles me quite a bit. You know, you could take the view that something like Ireland for Law is an encouragement of forum shopping. And should that really be a priority, where the real priority should be to ensure that everyone has access to justice and that it's possible to have viable careers as practitioners within the system uh, and not, you know, not not close that off to people who don't have the financial wherewithal to make it without making a salary from that, things like that. And those are the kind of things that, that kind of bother me a bit about law within the broader kind of public interest piece. How will it survive in that setting where, you know, the emphasis is on money-making and shoring up systems that are intrinsically unfair and unjust, and that that for me that for me is a bother, mm-hmm. um, but you know one that has to be chipped away at. I think. Excellent, and just I guess this brings us back to our original uh, discussion when we opened up. Um, we're often asked by listeners, you know, who are interested in working in human rights, interested in getting involved in public interest law. Um, if someone is listening and contemplating entering into the world of law in general, what advice would you have for them if they were to pursue a career like yours? So, in the academic world. Well, I mean, if somebody wants to be an academic, like. You know, when I when I accidentally became one, 
it was a very different career structure, career path to what it is now. There's absolutely no way I would, I would, um, you know, on the basis in which I had entered a career in the past, be able to do so now. So it has changed hugely. And one of the worries I think about academia is that we may be constricting the freedom of academics to comment and engage to the degree to the degree that they have done in the past. There's a huge emphasis now on, say, research funding. And there's a huge reward for um, research funding. By implication, there's a punishment for no research funding. And in disciplines like law, where you know funding can be achieved, maybe not to the extent that in certain STEM subjects or whatever, that can ultimately impoverish the benefits of academic freedom in the sense that you can end up doing a lot of research that shores up the system or that informs the system in some kind of, you know, comparative advisory way or whatever, but that doesn't actually challenge it or that, or that impedes your possibility of challenging it because of the obligations that go with research contracts and such things. That, that worries me a bit. Having said that, I don't think academics have ever used their academic freedom to the extent that they could to, you know, challenge the system and such like. Um, challenges to the system, say, through public intellectuals or whatever, have actually usually come from outside academia and not from within. They come from writers and playwrights and journalists and people like that, activists of one, one sort or another. So I'm not over-claiming the value of academic freedom for the noble history of academics, far from it, in fact. Uh, but I am worried that you know, the future orientation of academic careers will not be at all towards challenge and will be very much towards um, towards shoring up the system and adding value and things like that, not doing the fundamental things. I mean, the same arguments can be made against scientific research, but, but on our side of the house, I think that, that is, is worrying. And, I mean, there are still people, still amazing people who do all of that kind of work and manage within uh, those structures to do extraordinary, impactful work um, and radical work. And that's something to be really cherished. And I have to say, in my own place of work in the University of Galway, I always felt there was a kind of a, there was a freedom there. Maybe it was indifferent, I don't know. But I always felt that there was this kind of uh, support for academics who engaged in the public square, you know, maybe to the neglect of other of other things that they, they should be doing, but but with impact. I always felt that was valued in our in our university and and I hope that, that that is something that that continues. And certainly, you know, the kinds of kinds of activities I've I've engaged in, I never felt uh, pressure not to do any of that. In fact, most of the time, I felt that that was, was, was valued and, and celebrated. But I think in the future, in the future direction, you know, I, I wouldn't be advising somebody young entering academia to do what I did. I certainly wouldn't do that. Um, you know, that would be that would be bad advice. Um, would I say become an academic so that you can be a really effective ac- activist? I'm not sure that I would. I think that you can do you can do this kind of work uh, in other spheres. You can also have hybrid careers where you're a part-time academic right, yeah. and a part-time activist and that kind of idea. One of the things I do with my human rights students 
and again, it's interesting because you said you were from or coming from Uri. Um, I do talk to my human rights students about the late Professor Kevin Boyle, who was associated with Solway and, and was, was from Newry, mm-hmm. because he, to me, is the model scholar activist. He is the model of the academic who engages both as a legal practitioner but also as an activist uh, in the public square and, and transnationally. And one of the great, I think, legacies of someone like Kevin is that, you know, his own work, his amazing work, speaks for itself. But the battalion of optimists that he inspired to do that work differently and better um, is really and truly an enduring legacy. And I think that's something that I feel inspires students. If you talk to them about, you know, Kevin, as somebody who was there long before they were born in Galway, and went on to do the great things that he did in Essex and with Article 19. Say nothing of the great things he did when he was a very young person in people's democracy and things like that. Yeah. You know, that when you when you talk to them about people like that or when they meet activists who are out there doing what it is that they might do, that is much more effective than, you know, preaching legal doctrine or ideology at them. Um, and it makes it more, I think, relatable, more imaginable for them as something that might define how they live their life. But, but to go back to the point I made at the very beginning, you know, it's about planning, but not planning excessively. Yeah, absolutely. Look, that's so insightful and, and so valuable. Um, Professor Donica O'Connell, I'd like to thank you for giving up your time today and for joining us here. We'll follow your work. There's so many points there that are going to be live over the next few months. And we'll also share the event that you mentioned as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks everyone for joining me today. If you like the show, please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment. And you can also check out our website, www.activistlawyer.com, where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors, as well as some fabulous Activist Lawyer merchandise. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.